John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, maybe the greatest declaration that Jesus ever made. Uh, we talked about it last time where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And by making that declaration, he's acknowledging there have been bad shepherds. There are bad shepherds. There will always be bad shepherds, but he is the good shepherd. And what's the difference? Verse 11, he lays his life down for the sheep. We'll get into that. Uh, verse 4, uh, verse 27, he says, I know my sheep. They hear my voice, and I know them. And then verse 28, I will give them eternal life. Only God can give eternal life. Therefore, Jesus is God, and get this, Jesus is the Lord, and David said, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the one who restores my soul and leads me to green pastures and fills me with good things and sets a table in front of my enemies. And here's what I said last time, and I just want to say it again. Because it's so important. Can you say with David, the Lord is my shepherd? Can you say that with all your heart? Because if you can't say the Lord is my shepherd until you can say the shepherd is my Lord. See, that's why we're studying the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we have these encounters with Jesus where he meets real people like you and me. And he brings them to a place where they hear his voice and then there's a decision. Will they enter into a relationship with God? Will they forego tradition and everything they've learned and enter into this brand new experience that we call transformation or being born again or new life or whatever you want to call it? This is the God that we've always been looking for, the shepherd of our souls. Now, last week I gave you five points. I'm going to review them in less than two minutes. Uh, the sheep metaphor, sheep shepherd metaphor is strange to us because we're modern but I shared that it speaks of the tremendous value that God has placed on us. You know, we were made lower than the angels, we're higher than the animals, but we are the height of God's creation. Never forget that. that that's the beautiful thing about living life. And I gave you so many examples last week of sheep, but my favorite is David in Psalm 139, where he says, Lord, you know me. And, and he's saying this through experience. You know me, Lord, you know even my rising up and my falling down. You know the mundane parts about me. You know every thought, God, before it's even on my lips. These things are too wonderful for me. And hopefully they're too wonderful for you. Uh, I used to have trouble thinking, how could God know everything? Now, it's dumb idea because if he created the world for nothing, of course he can know everything he's got. But I would get on an airplane and I would look down at a city thinking, God knows every thought of every person. And then human beings came out with this device called the GPS, which I believe one day will be in the Smithsonian Institute, right? You know, 100 years from now, they'll look back and say, look at that device. Can you believe they thought that was cool and that got them around? Think about a GPS. Not only can it get you where you want to go, it knows where everyone is at every time. My daughter's in graduate school in Abilene. And she texted me the other day, what are you doing at the Springfield Mall? And I'm thinking, this is weird. Most parents put this on their children's phone to track where their kids are. My kids are tracking me. I said, I'm buying luggage. I'm buying underwear. I'm at the Springfield Mall. What are you talking about? God knows us. He knows every thought, every human being. Uh, we can hear his voice. This is a game changer, guys. It really is. That we have a God who has given us revelation of himself. 66 books of the Bible. 
He's revealed who he is. He's slow to anger. He abounds in mercy. He's holy. We, we see all his attributes, the names of God. Hebrews 1 says, God who spoke to the fathers through the prophets in, in times of old now speaks through Jesus Christ. This idea that there's a God who speaks and cares and leads and guides us is awesome. Isaiah said, uh, men have idols and their idols have eyes and they see not and ears and they hear not and arms and they can't touch. We have a God who hears and sees and it's wonderful. Our shepherd protects us, not necessarily from everything bad in life, but like David who would kill lions and bears, there is a God who ever makes intercession for us. Hebrews says we have a refuge, just like there were cities of refuge in the Old Testament, Jesus is our refuge. Uh, number four, he's the door of the sheep. Very important. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's one door, one God, one spirit. We found that door. Verse 16, I have sheep not of this fold. We're part of that. The Gentile nations, it's gone into all the world. And finally, he's keeping us. He gives eternal life, and no one, no one, nothing will snatch us out of his hand. Last night, I was part of uh, a ceremony where we renewed vows, couples that have been married 15, 25, 35, 40 years. It was a wonderful celebration. And I shared at that celebration that marriage begins with a vow. It doesn't begin when you fall in love or have sexual relations. Marriage begins with a vow shared between two people in the sight of God, for better or worse, richer or poorer, till death do us part. And, and God didn't come up with that system to give you a cellmate, like, you know, you're locked in with this person for life. He gave us those vows because those are the vows he made with you and me. Romans 8. There's no pearl or sword or nakedness or anything that will ever separate us. We are forever linked to the shepherd of our souls. So I went home last week and I was... Very proud of the time we had talking about the Good Shepherd. It was one of those rare Sundays where I came off the stage, spiked my Bible, went home, and thought, that was a job well done. And then I realized Tuesday, we left a lot undone. So I'm going to move into like a part two of this shepherd-sheep analogy. Is that okay? You mind part two? Doesn't matter if you mind or not, it's all I prepared, so we're going to do it. Uh, and it really, really, this is where my heart is this morning. I kind of leaked this out last week, and I want to make sure we understand it. I think we understand the good shepherd. We know Jesus. But what about under shepherds? In 1 Peter 5, we'll put the verses on the screen. Uh, Peter writes this, and he learned it from Jesus. He says, the elders, the episcopos, who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder, the presbyteros, all interchangeable ideas, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Here's the admonition to church leaders, shepherd, poiman, pastor, the flock of God, which is among you. Serving as overseers, there has to be leadership, but not by compulsion, not because you have to, not because you get paid, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not lording it over them, not a bureaucracy, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, when the good shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. God has given the church leaderships. He's given us 
pastors and leaders. Ephesians 4, the evangelist, the prophet, the apostle, uh, those who would lead in the church. And I want to say this from the outset. I thought about this the other day, and I began to journal out all the names of the people who have sowed in my life, from home fellowship leaders to youth pastors to senior pastors to evangelists. And I, I just want to publicly thank all of those people who have invested in me because I know the hard work that went into it. I know the hours they've clocked, the, the things they set aside in life to serve God. And I wouldn't be the father, the husband, the pastor, the friend that I am today without those who have gone before me. I stand on their shoulders and so do most of us. And so leadership's a wonderful thing. And I understand leadership goes awry and there are bad shepherds. But I want you to understand, God has given us this structure in the church, these folks that would pastor over us. And like I shared, it goes down another level, right? Small group leaders are shepherding small platoons. Uh, down in our J-Kids, our, our children's pastor is shepherding those children. Innovate has a shepherd. Youth ministry, Pastor Mike was here. We could go on and on the shepherds that God has given us to lead us and guide us. And so I want to drill down in this category and say, what does a human shepherd look like? What are the qualifications? And the first thing I want to talk about is the character of the shepherd. Now, it already gave you some of it here, right? Not of compulsion, not greedy. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy the same thing. It's all about character, able to lead their children and their household well, uh, not a brawler. There's only really one aptitude, and that's to teach God's word. But I think when you put it all together, the one thing that God is driving for, and this is what you should look for in church leaders, is consistency. Consistency. What does that mean? Well, think about God. God says, I am God, and I change not. Aren't you glad? Like, the, like God doesn't write a promise here in Proverbs, and then next Sunday he changed his mind, right? So my dad, my stepdad was an alcoholic. That's the way it worked. When he was drinking, he promised us the world. The next day, those promises were gone. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God created the world with consistency. So what's this? A banana, right? Most of you think it's a banana. Uh, the only reason you think it's a banana is because God is consistent. But this is a banana peel. You have no idea what's inside. But when you peel it, there's always a banana. Always. Because God is consistent. Consistency is a beautiful thing. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, pastored into his 80s. I don't know how many people know that. He gave this advice to young pastors. He said, every shepherd should stay in one place and cultivate a pastoral, listen to this, field of souls. A field of souls. See, this is what we're building up. You know, you go to the doctor, he's worried about your physical frame. Pastors care for your souls. They want to see you grow in the things of God. They want to see you nourished in the things of God. I think church should be the best hour of our week as we gather. We hear from God, we sing common songs, we fellowship with one another. Great meetings happen and great possibilities happen every single time that we gather. Pastoring in the same field, which I've done for 27 years, is tedious hard work of training, discipling, and uh, watching over people. It takes a tremendous amount of patience. This is why some guys 
travel and teach the Bible. They have five messages, they go to retreats, and they travel one place to another because you never have to deal with souls. Uh, someone once told me that you'll recognize Moses in heaven. Not because he looks like Charlton Heston, but because he will have a flat nose. And you're thinking, why would he have a flat nose? Because Moses had a congregation in the wilderness, and everybody understands this, and Paul writes about it, that grumbled, complained, they were unthankful, unholy, and entitled. They had seen every miracle. They had manna every day, and they still grumbled, and they complained, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They grumbled so much, even God wanted to wipe them out. And you know what Moses would do every time? He would get on his face and pray. That's why he has a flat nose. And he would say, God, these are your people. You brought them out of Egypt, God. Your name's at stake here. Sheep are wayward. Sheep are sinful. Anybody have employees that get a little out of line, go sideways now and again? Small groups, anybody in your small group go sideways? Any of your kids go sideways, right? This is what happens. And we've been assigned the task to care for people's souls. And, and there's a consistency about this. There really is. And, and one of the ways we care for souls is how we teach God's word. I read this in the Wall Street Journal the other day, and I remember reading this five years ago. You know the atheist actually started church services five years ago? I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. You may have read this. Five years ago, atheists said, why don't we get together in a common place? We'll get a motivational speaker, somebody to sing a pop song. We'll bring cookies and all. We'll do everything a church does except there'll be no God. And you ready for this? In New York City, they had 5,000 people on a Sunday morning. Now, not in one location. There were 70 locations. But the, but the article in the Wall Street Journal this week was, they have dropped 70% in attendance. Guess why? Somebody got tired of finding motivational speakers. Somebody got tired of singing pop songs. Somebody got tired of going through all the ritual of getting cookies and coffee and all that, and then they just got tired. Do you know why? Because nothing's there. There's no cause. There's no God. The beautiful thing we have, and if it wasn't for this, we would just be like them, is the word of God. This is our life. This is our bread. Every church leader has to consistently find a way to infuse sheep with God's word. Now here at Calvary, it's very easy. We go Genesis to Revelation. We teach through the Bible. We teach through books. We started John. We're going to finish John. We're, we're not going to go around topics we don't like. A friend of mine just visited a church in Dallas, and they're in 1 Peter. And I'm like, wow, they're in 1 Peter? That means they're going to talk about suffering and false teachers. And he's like, no, Bob, it wasn't any of that. It was, it was kind of, they were kind of using the Bible. Sheep must be fed. They must be fed consistently. Now, there's an axiom I try to live by. I don't always live by it. I live by it most of the time. That sheep must be led, and you can never beat the sheep. Now, some of you have been beaten up pretty bad. Some of you come from places where you were beat to a pulp, and it should never happen. You know why? Because the great shepherd would never beat you. Now, I know why this happens. I've experienced it. Uh, I was invited to a men's conference, 
And I was given the opening slot. I was really excited. I care for men. I want to see men grow. So made my way down to the conference center and walked into the meeting place. And the first thing that jarred me, no worship. I'm like, okay, I can get over this hump. And then um, second of all, all the men were sitting at desks. They were literally behind desks because that was the way this conference center was up. And I'm like, oh boy, I can get over this. Then there was something I couldn't get over. Um, not the senior pastor, the men's pastor got up and for 20 years gave like a major league beating to these men. Just talked about how men were not doing this and men weren't doing that. And the whole time I'm thinking, wait a second, these guys paid. You know, the guys that didn't go on the retreat are the ones who should be hearing this. And he beat the sheep pretty good. And I got up there and tried to resurrect it and vowed to God once again, God, these are your sheep. They hear your voice. And I understand the tendency, right? I understand the tendency of church leaders who pray and brainstorm and we want to move people from here to there and, you know, we think the spirit of God is in this and then you kind of roll something out and it falls flat. No one shows up. No one cares. And the tendency of the leader is to say, these are bad sheep. They're worldly, half-hearted, uncommitted, consumer-oriented. And then you cry out to God, God, how come the church over there is doing great things? And then you realize it. God gave me slacker sheep. What's going on here? Then you come to your senses. And you say, these are God's people. God loves them. Maybe our plan was bad. Maybe it's bad timing. Maybe we're not scratching where people are itching. People have difficult lives. People sin. People wander. And then you look at Jesus. Just the 12 that he had, the patience he needed. He never beat Peter. He never beat John. Once in a while, he'd say, you have little faith. But he always encouraged them, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He always moved them on to greater heights. Can never beat the sheep. They must always be led. If this is your church, if you move on to another church, if you're coming from a church, always go to a place where you'll be led to higher ground. God would never beat the sheep. No, neither should anyone else. Chuck Smith shared this with us a long time ago, that most of the fruit you'll ever see in ministry takes a while, and a lot of it comes at the end. And I kind of remember that on my sabbatical. I was down in Houston marrying a couple from this church, and there was a pastor speaking there, and he talked about the Chinese bamboo tree. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. The Chinese bamboo tree has one of the smallest seeds, and yet when it goes in the ground, you water it, you cultivate it, and guess how much growth you get in the first year? Zero. Guess how much growth you get in the second year? Zero. Third year, you go out and water and cultivate. Guess how much growth you get? Zero. Fourth year, zero. The fifth year, in just six weeks, the Chinese bamboo tree grows 80 feet in the air. 80 feet in the air. Can you imagine for the first four years just wanting to give up, throwing the towel? Now some of you are thinking, that's impossible. I'm going to Google it when I go home. Uh, how can a tree grow 80 feet? It sounds ridiculous. Because the whole while it's growing downward under the ground and building a foundation kind of like an iceberg so that it can go up. 
See, that's the work of ministry. That's the work of pastors and church leaders. The fruit doesn't come for a long, long time. I received this email this week. I'm going to do something dangerous. I'm going to use technology on a Sunday. Um, and someone wrote me this. I wanted to write you and Monica for a long, long time. Don't know why it took so long. My life and my family's life has been forever changed because God brought us to CC Delco. When I think of you guys, a million little and big moments come flooding into my mind. If I could ever possibly list all the moments we had in trips and shared experiences, big and small moments, they just keep flooding my mind. If I could ever possibly list all the little text messages, all the emails, the thank you cards, all the ministry that we have seen God do, uh, it would overwhelm me. My heart for CC Delco will never change. The atmosphere you all have created and the love you have for Jesus is overwhelming and we are forever grateful. And every once in a while you get one of those and you realize, oh my gosh, we are making a difference. And God is good. And it takes a while for those roots to go down before they come up. Consistency matters because God is consistent. Second thing that I kind of looked at this week was the virtue of shepherds. What is their virtue? It's all a church leader really has is virtue. Because think about it, when a church leader falls and the virtue's gone, they go into oblivion. You never hear of them again. Every church leader is hanging on this thread of virtue. Again, I learned long ago in Calvary Chapel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. I think the virtue of all church leaders and shepherds is remaining small in your own eyes, no matter what God does. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. When he walked out on his balcony and he oversaw the kingdom of Babylon, he said, this is the Babylon I've created. This is my empire. And if you're not careful as a business person, a church leader, or anybody who's built anything, you could walk around a campus and say, this is the empire that I've created. Saul started out as a humble king. At his coronation day, he's hiding in the cloakroom, literally. And by the end, when the kingdom is taken away from him, he's holding on to Samuel's garment. He's holding on to power. I think the key of virtue is to remain small in your own eyes. Here's the problem with ministry. So much of it is public. You know, today we pray in public, we preach in public, worship leaders play before everyone. You know, there's a lot of it that's public. There's a lot of it that's observable. The secret of a shepherd's virtue is what happens in the secret place, in what I call the unobservable place. Isaiah, when Israel went into Babylonian exile, said, in vain have I labored. For waste and absurdity, I spent all my strength. Can I paraphrase that? God, I followed you, and it was a colossal waste. Because Israel was in Babylonian captivity. I mean, there could be nothing worse than our enemies overtaking us. I've wasted my time. The very next verse, he comes to his senses. Isaiah 49, 4. Ah, but my cause is with Yahweh, the Lord, and my recompense is with God. Isaiah said, God, if you call me to this, then this is what I'll do. 
Isaiah said, the Lord made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand, and he hid me, and he made me a polished arrow. Listen, in his quiver he concealed me. In the secret, quiet place that no one saw, the unobservable place. Ellen Davis comments on this, and it's beautiful. She said, living in the deep shadow of God's hand, hiding in the quiver that rides on God's back. Thus, Isaiah reminds us that the servant's preparation for effective public ministry occurs in out-of-the-way places where perhaps no one much notices, approves, or is grateful for what we do. David, out with the sheep before he was king. It is in the hidden places where we are most closely under God's protective care. This is a truth easily forgotten in the environment most of us inhabit, where many people aspire to a few obviously desirable positions, and disappointment is a regular experience. Yet the very existence of this second part of the book of Isaiah challenges our common assumptions that public recognition is the standard of success in the Christian life and is taken to other walks of life. The oxymoron of the Christian celebrity or the celebrity pastor. How did we ever get here? From Babylon, the rubbish heap of nations, it seemed most unlikely that any light would ever shine. It is because we so much need obscurity and often do not know its value that the scriptures repeatedly remind us of the need. Listen to the psalmist, listen to David. Keep us, O Lord, as the apple of your eye. Hide us in the shadow of your wings, Psalm 17, 8. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I find and sing for joy, Psalm 63, 7. Be, be for me a rock of refuge, always save me, for you are my rock, and you are my fortress, Psalm 71, 3. The reason why David and the others wrote these psalms is leadership is lonely. The secret place is lonely. But it's the only place where you get alone with God and find the strength necessary to bring more value. How many times would Jesus have an incredible burst of ministry, maybe feed 5,000 people or heal all diseases, and the very next verse says that he secluded away to a deserted place? The tendency today is success in ministry, let's ramp the next thing up. Let's get on to the next thing. Because that's where we find our adulation. That's where we get our attaboys. This week at our staff meeting, we showed a talk that many of us had seen and had been to before, where the pastor shared that he had a fully functioning church of so many ministries that most churches would die for. And he came to a realization one day that he had become a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Jesus Christ. And you can get to that place if you don't understand the secret place. And in the secret place, you're reminded that you have to be small in your own eyes. Because life's going to move on and God's eyes are going to and fro and God's going to use other people and we need to be happy that he uses us at all. The last thing I want to share about true shepherds and again, anywhere you go, you need to find this. Verse 11, they lay their life down for the sheep. Now, can I give you guys this is the bad news today? Can you take a little bit of bad news? Uh, I wouldn't die for you guys. Sorry. Now, metaphorically, I'll lay down my life, right? 
you know, I'll forego watching NFL and NBA and March Madness on Saturday night so I could study a little harder. And uh, I'll work long hours. I'll metaphorically lay my life down for you guys. I ain't dying for anybody in here, okay? All right, that, I'm just being honest. Uh, by the way, David never died for anybody. Uh, neither did Solomon. Uh, neither did most of the people in Scripture. But one shepherd did. One shepherd did. And, and look, I don't want to get weepy here or turn this into an anthem. Because soldiers have died for our freedom. And, and people actually have died for people. So I want to nerd out a little and take you to kind of another level and explain this. Uh, Jesus dying for you and me uh, isn't kind of the sappy thing we make it out to be. Uh, if you look at John chapter 10, down to verse uh, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take again. My command I have received from my Father. When Jesus said he had power to lay down his life, here's what he's talking about. Jesus was the only person who ever lived who was fully God and fully man, and we'll never understand that. Because he lived a sinful life, Jesus would have never died. You have to understand that as hard as it is. When Jesus came into this world, he divested himself of all authority. The Father's given me all authority. He gave that authority back to the Father, and then through the cross, all authority was given back to him. It's a beautiful picture of power under control. So when Jesus said he had the power to lay his life down, he's telling us the truth. Uh, there's a fascinating verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered. Listen, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, from eternity past, Jesus was going to die for our sins. You have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified and you have put to death. And yet God raised him up from the dead, etc., etc., etc. See, this was God's choice from the foundation of the world. It doesn't remove man's culpability. When Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, please understand this. This is why he is the only shepherd in the God you're looking for. He is the only one that can defeat the monster who sits next to every one of you in this room. And that monster is death. Death hovers over the human race, the grim reaper. The Bible doesn't hide this. People who don't read the Bible think the Bible's full of wish fulfillment. It's not. The Bible calls death the king of terrors, the last enemy. Uh, there's a movement up front by atheists and others today to make death natural. Death's just a part of living. It's just a part of life. Yeah, when's the last time you've been to a funeral? Doesn't look like a part of life to me. When Kobe Bryant died, it didn't look like a part of life to me. When I visit people in hospitals, it doesn't look like a part of life to me. It scares us. It's the king of terrors. Jesus is the only one who said, I can do something about that. 
and he laid his life down. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, he destroyed the last enemy that is death, and he came the first fruits of all those who rise from the dead. And again, for those of you who aren't farmers, I'll turn that into kind of a modern day translation. The first fruits is he became the prototype. So when Boeing builds an aircraft, they build a prototype, they fly the prototype. If the prototype works, that means all the rest will work. He was the first one to rise from the dead. If he rose from the dead, guys, this is Easter. Guess what's going to happen to you and me? Same exact thing. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And this mortal shall put on immortality. Because Jesus laid his life down willingly. He is the shepherd of our souls. He's the God you're looking for. And look, God has given us under shepherds. I am so thankful for that. But here's what you need to know. As, as good or bad as your under shepherds are, they can never replace God. This is why things go squirrely in churches and ministries because people are trying to get everything out of one man or one movement. It doesn't work. There comes a point where, like Isaiah, you have to see the Lord high and lifted up. E.V. Hill was one of my favorite preachers, uh, one of the greatest communicators of all time, loved God with all his heart. He would go to conferences, and women would come to him and say, Pastor, let me shake your hand, let me touch your hand. He said, hurry up and shake it, because these tracks are leading into the graveyard. He said, there's only one set of tracks ever leading out of the graveyard. Shake his hand. There's a guy who was small in his own eyes. There's only one that can restore your soul, lead you to green pastures, still waters. There's only one shepherd where you will ever find contentment. He is your refuge. He is your shepherd. He's the God you're looking for. And he is the door, and I hope you know him.